Well, good morning. This thing, I keep forgetting that this thing is just about to be broken here. So if it breaks in the middle of the service, it's because I knocked it over. It's, it's being held together with two screws at this point. But... Um, Man, it's so good to be with you today. Before we jump into God's word, just two quick things I wanted to point out. As all of you know, and as you've seen in the videos, Easter is next week. And so I wanna encourage you on your way out today, uh, we have a bunch of these little invite-sized business cards. And I wanna encourage you to grab some and prayerfully consider who God would want you to invite next Sunday to Easter. There's something powerful about simply giving an invitation. And so, and I, and I want you to get creative with it, right? And so that might mean when you go out to lunch, how many of you, if you go out to lunch sometimes on Sundays with your family. When you go out, listen, what I want you to do is when you go out today, I want you to give like a great, great tip at the end of your meal, like a great tip. And then leave some of these. Don't be a bad Christian that gives a crappy tip in a, in a card to church. That's not good. Unless you give a card inviting them to a different church, that's fine. Um, that's a joke, just so you know. We're all on the same team. But I would encourage you, give a good tip, invite them. I've seen people do this before too, where they put them, I don't understand why, right? But I've seen people like, they put them up in the rolls of toilet paper. So I guess it's a good time to invite somebody to church, right? I don't know, I don't know why, don't use this, but you know, come to church next week, right? Um, Lots of different ways, but I would just encourage you, put them on some bulletin boards, give them to your neighbors, give them to your, your kids to bring to school and invite their friends. But I wanna, I wanna encourage you to invite somebody this week to join you next Sunday or Friday night for our, our services. And we're believing that God is gonna change lives, that he's gonna draw people to himself and he's gonna do what only he can do. So now we're excited for Easter. And also, as you saw earlier, um, there is our, our Easter offering. I wanna encourage you to prayfully consider what God would have you bring for that offering next week. As you don't know, if you're not part of our church, that's an offering every single year that we give completely away. Um, we don't account for it, we don't budget for it. We just, we just bless whoever we decide that year that we're gonna give it to. And this year we're partnering with the Philadelphia Dream Center and we're gonna be giving that away. And the exciting thing this year is that, as you saw in the video, um, there is a, a business person from our church that has, that has graciously decided that they're going to match whatever comes into that offering up to $75,000. So this has the potential to be a, a massive amount of money that we're able to bless the Philadelphia Dream Center and all the ministry that they're doing in parts of Kensington and Philadelphia. And so, man, pray about how you can be sacrificially generous next Sunday as we bless them. And so uh, we're in part number two of our, of our Easter series that we're calling The Weekend That Changed the World. Uh, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to look at the events of Palm Sunday. Uh, for many people, uh, Palm Sunday is, is like something you celebrated that you know about and things like that, but it doesn't necessarily have the same level of significance as maybe Good Friday or Easter. If you're not familiar, Palm Sunday was the Sunday that began Jesus's final week walking on earth, leading up to his, his death, burial, and resurrection. The purpose that he actually came to accomplish, this was the beginning, so to speak, of the end and for him and, and, and actually doing what he came to do. And uh, Palm Sunday is something that is mentioned and talked about in all four of the gospels. And if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll notice that the story is told in, in different ways. There's different details that are added in different stories. And so if you read all four of the gospel accounts, you'll kind of get like a bigger picture of what took place on that day. But we're going to take some time today to explore and to talk about what took place during that first
first Palm Sunday. And so to do that, uh, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark's account. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be there in just a moment. But before we, we look at those scripture verses, I want to just take a couple moments to kind of put ourselves on the scene for that first Palm Sunday. And so I want you to just take a couple, maybe if you have to close your eyes, if you're a visual person or you, you want to kind of get this mental picture in your mind, close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about that you are in Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday, a city that maybe normally has around 50,000 people at this time has maybe over 200,000 people as Jewish people from all over the, the nation of Israel have made the pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover feast in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the Passover is one of three feasts that devout Jewish people would head to Jerusalem to take part in. Uh, there was, um, during the Passover feast, it was a time where they remembered how God had delivered them from the nation of Egypt, their slavery in Egypt. If you look back in the Old Testament, you look in the book of Exodus, you read about a season in time in nation of Israel's history. For over 400 years, they were held as slaves to the nation of Egypt, and they cried out to God, and God finally delivered him. He sent Moses, and Moses came and did these 10 signs and wonders, and it kept pleading with Pharaoh to let the people go, and, and he he kept refusing and not doing it until the final, the final sign, the final plague, which was God told him he's going to send an angel that was essentially an angel of death that was going to, to kill the firstborn of all the people in the land unless you took the blood of a lamb and you would take that lamb and put the blood over your doorpost. And when you put the blood over your doorpost, that angel would pass over your house and you would be spared. And, and so can I tell you, Passover in, in a lot of ways is, is actually something that was pointing to what Jesus was about to accomplish on the cross. There's so much significance. If you read the story of Passover and you read what God was doing, that it all was pointing to what Jesus is ultimately going to fulfill on Good Friday and Easter. I don't even think they realize the significance of what Jesus is coming to do in this moment, but that is why they're there. They're there to celebrate and to remember what God had done and to look forward to a time when God would set them free again, when God would deliver them again. Now, they're no longer under the oppression of the Egyptians at this time in their history, but they're under a different nation's oppression. That they are under the oppression of the Roman Empire and they are prisoners in their own city. It's celebrated Passover and now they're, they're celebrating and they're aware of the fact that they need that deliverer to show up again. Everywhere they look, they're reminded of the fact that they are not truly free. There's Roman soldiers everywhere. There's been times in the nation of Israel's history where they tried to revolt and, and rebel against the Roman Empire to take over the Roman Empire. And every single time they've lost and the, the empire has made an example of those people. There's times when they would walk into the, to the city and as they're walking into the city, there'd be people who had been crucified as punishment for rebellion along the road leading into the city as a reminder that you don't mess with the Romans, right? Like you don't rebel against them. There's nothing you can do to change this. And so in that mindset, in that mentality, here they are celebrating the Passover, remembering God's deliverance and, and believing and praying for God to do that once more. And there's something different about this year. There's, a, there's an energy in the air. There's an excitement that they're feeling during this, this time. They were looking for that second Moses to deliver them. They were looking for that second king in the line of David to, to march in, to overthrow the Romans. And, and all of their messianic hopes and all of their dreams are beginning to get focused onto this man, Jesus. 
There's many people who have been hearing about the miracles, hearing about the way he preaches, hearing about the signs and wonders, and, and they're beginning to ask themselves, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Are we finally gonna be free? And Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high at this point. Like he, is, he has done the miracles, he has preached with authority, he has healed people, blind eyes have been opened, the lame are walking, right? He's fed multitudes, all these crazy things. But now, just a few days maybe before, this Palm Sunday event, he, he took it a step further. He very publicly raised somebody from the dead named Lazarus. It wasn't like this dude was just dead for like an hour or for just a day or something. Like he was dead and, and he had been dead for the Bible says four days. He was at a place where they believed there was no chance that anything, how many of you understand that death is final? I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral before where the person was there and it was like a, a casket all like sat up that would, I'd be, I'm out, like I'm, I'm gone. That's, that's a little too much for me. Can you imagine in this moment, they're at Lazarus' funeral, they're mourning. It's been four days. They think he is dead, gone. And Jesus walks into the scene and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And they're like, are you sure? He's like stinky dead at this point. I don't even know if we want him to come back at this point. Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus walking out. He's all in his grave clothes still. He's walking out like a mummy. People are amazed. Can you imagine, like the word, if you bring somebody back from the dead, if you have power over even death itself, come on, how many of you know, people are gonna start believing in you a little bit. People are gonna start, that's like a major thing to, to overcome. And word about him spreads and people are finally, is this finally the one? This guy has power over death. So that means if we go and fight the Romans and they kill us, he can just bring us back to life. We got multiple lives, we can keep fighting. We're never gonna lose this battle. That's what they're thinking in their mind. Maybe this is finally the one. Maybe our freedom is about to be here. Maybe this is finally gonna be the day when all of this is fulfilled and finally our nation is going to be restored and we are gonna be delivered. And that's the, the mindset that I want you to have as we look at these scriptures. That's the, the energy that I want you to be thinking about as all of these scriptures that we look at take place. And so let's look at Mark chapter 11, verses one through 11. It says, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back right away. So just to give you a little bit of a, a picture of what's going on here. Um, when people were traveling from the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the area of Galilee for these festivals in Jerusalem, they would often go this common path, the road from Jericho into Jerusalem. It was about 13 to 17 miles. This is the path that Jesus and many of his followers and the people that he had done miracles for are probably traveling along as they're making their way to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And they get to a place that is about two miles from the city of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethpage. And Jesus stops in that moment and he, and he sends two two of his disciples to go ahead to a town. Now, it doesn't say which two he sent because that's not really an important detail. It just says he sent two of his disciples to the town and he gave them very specific instructions. You're gonna go into the town and you're gonna see like a baby horse, a baby donkey. It's gonna be sitting there tied up. You're gonna steal that sucker and bring it to me. And when people question you, I want you to tell them that the Lord needs it and they're gonna be fine with that. I don't know if Jesus pre-set this up or if he just knew exactly what was gonna take place. The Bible doesn't say. But can you imagine, first of all, I've always thought about things because my brain is a little ADHD, I believe. And uh, when I'm reading the Bible, there's times where I'm thinking about things. In my mind, I'm going, how did they know which donkey? Because there's probably more donkeys, right? 
Like there was, there's no signs on a donkey that says like, this one's, this one's got low miles, right? This, is a, this one's never been ridden before. So how do they, I don't know how they knew, but it was exactly as Jesus said, right? Because their job wasn't to figure it all out. Their job was simply to be obedient. And so they show up in the town and this is what happens. So, so they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus has said, the Lord needs it. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed. In other words, he's saying there was people who came with Jesus, crowds and multitudes, his disciples, people who had followed him, seen the miracles, everything else that were following Jesus into Jerusalem for the Passover. There was also people that heard that Jesus was near and they came out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus where he was to be a part of this kind of parade and processional. And so it says those who followed and those who went ahead shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. There's two things that I wanna point out as we explore this passage today, two kind of main thoughts and ideas that I think we need to understand when we think about and, and, and ponder about the events of the first Palm Sunday. The first one is this, Jesus came to be a king and he's a king like no other. Jesus came to be a king and he's a king like no other. And as we look at these portions of scripture, I wanna point out four things that we can see about Jesus as king that, that separates him, that differentiates him from the normal kings that would have been around at that time and, and, and why we can trust Jesus and understand the kingdom of God. And so the first thing, if you're taking notes is this, when it comes to Jesus as king, we have to understand that he is the prophetically promised king. Jesus is their promised Messiah. He is the promised King. He is the righteous and true King of Israel. The one that the people of Israel had been waiting for. That's what he was boldly declaring in this moment. I want you to understand something. When Jesus chooses the, the mode of transportation that he chose, when he chooses to enter into the city of Jerusalem, the exact way that he chooses to enter, he was boldly, in de boldly declaring at that point that he truly was the Messiah. He he was leaving no doubt. He was boldly declaring who he came to be. If you've ever noticed when you're reading through the gospels, there's times where you read through and it says that, that Jesus, people came to Jesus and they, and they would say, you're the Messiah, or he would cast the demon out of somebody and they would be like, you're the, the son of God. And he would tell them just to be quiet. Or he'd heal somebody and he'd tell them like, listen, I know you had leprosy for a long time and now you don't have leprosy, but don't tell anybody which they always did, right? They always, for some reason, disobeyed what Jesus told them to do and they told everybody. And the, th the reason I think Jesus often told people not to say anything because he was in a season where he was preaching the truth of the gospel and every time people, uh, he did a miracle and people told people there was always huge crowds around him and it kept him from actually doing ministry the way he wanted to do ministry. There's many times where Jesus didn't, didn't boldly declare that he was the Messiah. He didn't deny it, but he didn't like present himself that way. He wasn't walking around with a sign on that says, hello, my name is Christ, right? Like my name is Messiah. He, he was, but he didn't boldly declare it. In fact, one time he fed a multitude of people, over 4,000 people he fed. And, and it said afterwards, they were so excited because of this miracle that they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Right? They want it. They're like, this king is awesome. He heals people. Now he provides free food out of nothing. Like this is the perfect king for us. 
The Bible says that Jesus knew his time had not come and that the kingdom that he came to establish was not the kind of kingdom that they were trying to put him in charge of. And he snuck away by himself and avoided that situation. But now, now on this day, this Palm Sunday, as he gets on this donkey and he rides in and people are surrounding him, giving him a parade, singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. As he's doing that, what he is doing in this moment is he is boldly declaring and saying, yes, I am the one you've been waiting for. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. Nothing he does is on accident. Everything he does is very intentional. And there was a, a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that talked about how the Messiah would come. And this is what it said in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter nine. I want you to see the similarities of what Jesus is doing. Chapter nine, verse nine says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout and triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel, the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. The Jewish people, they knew their Bible, they knew their scriptures, they knew what the prophets had said and claimed about the Messiah. They knew that this portion of scripture in Zechariah was a, a future promise of how the Messiah was gonna show up under the picture. And here Jesus is, and he is painting a picture that they would have been very, very aware of. When they saw him riding in like that, it would have been like, like light flashes were going off. This is him, this is the Messiah. Essentially what Jesus was saying in that moment, he was boldly declaring, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am your Messiah, and can I tell you, this isn't the only time that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Many prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his miracles, in what he said. This was just the, the cherry on top, right? This was like the last one. This was like the bold declaration. There was no denying who he was. He wasn't holding back at all. In fact, when he was coming in, the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, I think in, in, the, in the book of Luke, when it tells a story, they look at him, they were like, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop singing praises. Tell them to stop saying Hosanna. And he looks at them and he says, listen, if they stop, the rocks will just cry out. There is nothing that can stop my praises at this point. The time has come. He is the prophesied promised Messiah. Number two, when he came as a king, he came to establish his kingdom with peace, not war. Jesus choosing to ride in on a donkey was very, very significant and purposeful for another reason. See, in ancient times, when a conquering king who had just conquered a kingdom would show up on the scene, they would show back up into a city of a nation that they had conquered. They would come in and it would be a show of force and power. They would come in riding on a great white horse, maybe in a chariot of gold being pulled by this white horse. They would wear their royal armor and their crowns and show their money and their resources. They'd be surrounded by rank and file military uh, on, on horses as well and, and marching in with their spears and their shields and their swords to show power. They'd be dragging behind them, maybe the king and some other prisoners that they had overtaken in, in the battles to mock them and humiliate them. It was all about force. It was all about pomp. And circumstance. But if a king came into a, a, a nation that he had conquered on a donkey, it was meant to show a sign of peace. It meant that he was a peaceable king, that he had come not to conquer, but to, to establish peace. He came in a different way. And the Bible says that that's who Jesus is, that he came to be our peace. In fact, even a, the, a prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, one that we look at at Christmas time awfully when talking about the Messiah coming says it like this. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Jesus came to bring 
peace. Not to conquer, but to bring peace. But he came to bring peace, not necessarily in a way that they were hoping or expecting. Like their mindset, the peace that this Messiah was coming to bring is he was going to bring peace between the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire by any means necessary. He was going to bring peace in that way, but that's not the peace that he came to bring. He came to bring a peace that was so much greater than what they had in their minds. Jesus came to bring a peace between us and God. He came to bring peace. The Bible says that you and I, because of our sin, we are enemies of God, that our sin separates us from God, that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to bridge that gap and that divide that's between us and God. So Jesus came, the Bible says, to do what we could never do for ourselves, not just to bring peace between people, but ultimately to bring peace between us and God, to bridge that gap and that divide for us, to, to take care of our sin problem, to carry the wrath of God towards our sin on his back so that we can be made right with God. The Bible says when we put our faith in Jesus, that is exactly what takes place. We experience peace with God. In Romans chapter five, verses one and two, it says, therefore, since we have been made right with, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. See, Jesus, he didn't come into that city to tear down the Roman walls, to tear down the Roman fortress of Antonio, which was a, a Roman fortress that was right alongside the temple that the Romans built right onto the temple, the most holy place in all of Israel. And that, and that fortress was a constant reminder, even as they went to worship God, that they were not free. And they looked over that temple at all times and guarded that temple at all times to make sure there was never a revolt. They were thinking, man, Jesus is gonna come in. He's gonna go right into that fortress. He's gonna tear down that walls. He's gonna overthrow the Romans. But he didn't come to tear down the walls of the Antonio fortress. He didn't come to tear down the walls between the Romans and Jerusalem. He came to tear down the walls of hostility between us and God. Number three, the third thing we see about King Jesus is this, that he's a humble and compassionate king. Again, when he comes to greet his people, he doesn't come as a conquering king. He doesn't come with all the pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come in a parade surrounded by all the best of the best, the religious leaders, the celebrities, the warriors, all of those different kinds of things. He comes and in his parade is all the outcasts. It's all the, the outsiders. It's all the people that, that nobody else thought much of. It's the people that were healed. It was the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, people that lives have been changed because of Jesus. He's surrounded with those type of people. He's surrounded with the broken people. Those are the ones who are celebrating for him, cheering for him, the religious leaders. They wanted nothing to do with this celebration. They wanted to keep the peace with the Romans and, and whatever that the Romans allowed them to do, they just wanted to not mess anything up. They wanted to keep their power that they had as religious leaders. And Jesus was like surrounded himself by all of these other people, these outcasts and outsiders. And he humbly rode in, not on a conquering white horse, but on the back of a, of a donkey to the praise of these outsiders. Why? Because Jesus is confident in who he is. He's confident in his calling. He doesn't have to impress anybody. He's not living for everybody, anybody's approval or acceptance. He knows who he is. He knows what he came to do and that he's accomplishing what he came to do. And we see this all throughout Jesus's life that he was a person who was full of humility, that he was God, he was God in flesh, yet he chose to, to put aside his, his divinity and take hold of this humanity. And the Bible says it like this in Philippians chapter two, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave 
and was born as a human being. When you look at Jesus' life, all you see is humility, humility. He's born in humble circumstances, lived a, a humble life, humbly served those who should have been serving him, humbly washed the feet of his disciples when they should have been washing his feet, setting an example of what true humility, what true meekness, power under control actually looks like. And he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He came humbly, but not only did he come humbly, he came and he was full of compassion. This theme that you see throughout the life and ministry of Jesus is that he constantly had compassion for people. People that if we're honest with ourselves, we lose our patience with a lot. So I'm, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest enough to say that there's times where I'm not really compassionate. Sometimes I see people and I know why they are where they are. And I'm like, well, you did this to yourself, dummy, right? Like that's what I think in my mind. I don't say it out loud, but there's times where if I'm honest, I think it. And Jesus looks at these people who are broken, who are lost. And the Bible says they had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. That there was times where Jesus was tired. The crowds were constantly around him, wanting to be healed, wanting to be ministered to, wanting a free meal. They just wanted to see signs and wonders. And he was tired and worn out many times, yet he still had compassion and ministered to people reaching out to them because he understood their need, their brokenness. It's who he is. And even in this moment where he is riding into Jerusalem as a king, where he's going to accomplish his purpose, the Bible says that even in this moment, he's feeling compassion and brokenness for his people. When you read the, the account of the, the triumphal entry in the gospel of Luke, it says this in Luke 19, it says, as he approached and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not even leave one stone on another in the midst. And it's all because you did not recognize the, the time that God visited you. They missed out on it. His heart broke for his people because he knew what ultimately was gonna happen because they're rejecting him as their Prince of Peace, that they're rejecting him as their Messiah in this moment. He knew what was gonna take place. In fact, what he said here was actually something that prophetically took place about 30 years later when, they rebel, when the people of Israel rebelled one more time against the Roman Empire. And history will tell you that the Roman Empire destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem, destroyed their temple, did exactly what it says there. Not one stone was left on top of another at that point to quell the rebellion made a mockery of them, punished them for their rebellion. Why? He says, because all because you'd missed the opportunity when God came to you. All because you missed the opportunity. If you knew what I was coming to do, if you knew what would bring me peace, why? Because Jesus understood that you could experience true peace even if you were living under the oppression of the Roman government. We talked about this last week, right? There's people who, who know Jesus who are sitting in prison cells in different places in the world right now and they are more free and, 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 and know God in, in, in greater ways than some of the people who walk through our doors every single week who still live in spiritual bondage. Jesus said, if you knew what could bring you peace, you wouldn't have missed this moment. You would have missed out on this time. His heart broke, he had compassion. Why? Because Jesus is a humble and compassionate king. And then number four, he's also a king who saves. He's a king who came to save us. One of the most famous passages of scripture that most of us probably know, John 3.16 says it like this. And, and I wanna look at 3.16 and 17. It says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And I love verse 17. It says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. 
This is the heart of his mission. This is the heart of why he came, not to judge the world, but ultimately his desire is to save you from the sins. The Bible says that he is not slow in keeping his promises, but that he is patient with us, not wanting anybody to perish. It's his heart and his desire is he's come to save as the Messiah, as the King, he's come to save. So the crowd, they understood this about the Messiah. They understood the prophecies about the Messiah. They understood that the Messiah was going to save and deliver. And even though they didn't understand how that was all gonna take place, you see that they understood this as, as he's walking in in this parade. They're throwing their, their clothes, their cloaks, their coats on the ground in front of him. They're, they're putting palm branches on the ground in front of him. And as they're doing that, what they're, what they're doing by doing that is they're pledging allegiance and loyalty to Jesus as their Messiah. They're like, you're our Messiah. We're gonna follow you. And the Bible says not only are they doing that, but at the same time, they're, they're repeating this phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, is the one who comes as the king in the line of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're, they're actually singing a messianic psalm. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, where it says, please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you. From the house of the Lord, they're singing this song, repeating this song over and over again. Hosanna literally means save now. So what they're declaring at this time is they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, save us, deliver us, save us now. Get rid of the Romans right now. We believe you, we trust you, we're loyal to you. We're ready to go to battle with you. That's what they're declaring, they're praising. Yet it's crazy to me to think that these same people who formed this parade, many of these same people probably who formed this parade, who at the beginning of the week are saying, Hosanna, save us, we're loyal to you. The same people who did that are, are maybe, maybe the same people that a little bit later in the week are gonna be in the crowd that's yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't accomplish what they were wanting to do. They thought he was gonna go in there right into the city, overtake the Romans, overthrow them from their fortress, establish the kingdom of na the nation of Israel back into its prominence and its glory and begin the process of the rebellion. And I think the reason they were so frustrated is because of what happened in verse 11. And this is the only gospel account that says it like this. This is one of the first one, the first gospel account written by, I think this is why they were really, really frustrated. Ready? Verse 11 of Mark 11. One more time, I want you to read it. He went into Jerusalem and he went into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Just imagine this for a moment. They had just gone maybe two miles together on this parade. A two mile parade where they're putting their coats on the ground in front of him and the palm branches are waving and being put on the ground and they're screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he, save us now, save us now. We're on your side, we're loyal to you, we got this. And they're getting closer and closer to the city. And as they're getting closer to the city, they're seeing all this take place and they're visualizing what's gonna happen next. And they're maybe in their minds playing out, Jesus is gonna walk right into that temple and he's gonna walk right into that fortress of Antonio and he's gonna take the, people, the, the Roman guard, he's gonna throw them out over top of the thing and make a public scene and he's gonna establish the kingdom. This is going to be awesome. This is exactly what we've been waiting for. And what happens? He goes after the two miles. He walks into the temple. He looks around for a moment and he turns around and walks back the same way he came to the town of Bethlehem. Talk about an anticlimactic end to a parade. Can you imagine if you were there, you'd be disappointed too. You'd be like, what? You, you serious? You walked on my coat. I let you walk on my coat. I put palm branches. I said, save now, save now. I don't think you understood. Maybe there was something missed in the translation of Hosanna that was saved now, right? And you just walk in and you look around for a second. You don't do anything, the Bible says. He just turns around, walks out. The next day he comes back in, he comes into the temple 
And instead of going into the fortress of Antonio, what does he do? He goes into the temple and he clears out the money changers. My house should be a house of prayer. He deals with the temple first. He's like, I think you're, you're, you're removing the wrong people, Jesus. I don't think you got the message. And I think, and I think that's what another thing we can learn, another lesson we can learn when we look at Palm Sunday. And that's this, if you're taking notes, the second thing that I want us to see today is this, is that sometimes Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. There's times where, where Jesus disappoints us. There's times where, where we have expectations of who we think Jesus should be or what we think Jesus should do. And he, he doesn't live up to our expectations. You've probably experienced this in your life before. You've maybe prayed for something and the prayer did not happen the way you hoped. You're like, Jesus, I thought you were a magic genie and I had three wishes and this was one of my three wishes. And you didn't. We treat, we, 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 we have these opportunities, these times where he doesn't meet our expectations. We've been praying for something that doesn't happen. We've been believing for the perfect spouse in our lives and we don't get that person. We believe for God to restore our marriage and the marriage ends in divorce. We, we believe that, that our kids are gonna come to know Christ and they still rebel against Christ. He doesn't meet our expectations. He doesn't do what we want him to do or how we want him to do it. And because of that, we turn our backs on him. We're just like the people in the crowd if we're honest with ourselves. Maybe we're not saying those same words, but there's many times in our lives we're like, Hosanna, save us. We love you. We praise you. We're loyal to you. We're legion to you. And then he doesn't do what we want. We're like, all right, well, I don't want anything to do with you. I guess you're not the way. I guess I'm going to find something else to do. I'm going to find another king to serve. We're just like the people. And it's often because Jesus doesn't match or live up to our expectations. He doesn't do what we hope to do. I want you to understand that everything Jesus did at this point was intentional. Everything, every step of the way, everything he did from in his life was intentional. Nothing was an accident. When Jesus marched into the city that day, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what the process was gonna happen. He knew that his final week on earth was coming. He knew what was awaiting him. He knew the torture, the bloodshed, the pain and the suffering that he was gonna go through in just a few days. He knew all of it. He knew that the, these people, their praise would turn from praise to rejection to crucify him in just a few days. He knew all of it. And he still did it. He knew that when he walked into that city, this was gonna be the, the, the final straw, right? It was gonna be the final thing that caused the, the religious leaders to lose their minds and to finally turn Jesus over and hand him over and crucify him. In fact, he knew it so much that he repeatedly told his disciples, I don't know what happened if they couldn't understand. He spoke a different language. I don't know what was going on, but he told the disciples time and time again, we're going to Jerusalem and what's gonna take place there is not what you're hoping because they thought the same thing. Messiah, he's gonna save us. He's gonna deliver us, set up a kingdom. We're gonna be ruling with him. We're gonna be like his commanders of his army. And he said, that's not the kingdom I'm coming to establish. That's not what I'm going to do when we go to Jerusalem. In fact, in the chapter before Mark chapter 11, when he talks about the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 10, he clearly said it to his disciples. He said this, listen, he said, we're going to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. And he hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. He, he's telling them exactly, step by step, what is gonna take place when they get to Jerusalem, exactly what is gonna happen. He knew his plan. He knew what he was doing. He was very intentional in every way. Jesus knew what he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish. He understood the assignment. He understood what his job was. He understood it fully, yet the praises of the people changed in a moment. Because even though he knew what he was doing, they did not know what he was doing. And even though he knew what he was doing, they didn't do it, he didn't do it the way that they hoped, the way that they wanted. And I think oftentimes we do the same thing. See, they thought their greatest need was, was freedom from the Romans. Jesus understood that their greatest need was actually freedom from their sin. They thought that the, 
The thing they needed most was war and and vengeance against the Romans. Jesus understood that he came to bring peace. They believed at that time and they wanted Jesus to shed the blood of the Romans. He instead chose to show up on the scene and shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. They wanted an instant salvation. Jesus came to bring not just instant salvation, instant gratification, he came to bring eternal salvation. They wanted a kingdom where they could live and rule on the earth. They wanted to be in charge, they wanted the power. Jesus came to establish a kingdom that was not of this world, a kingdom that would never be defeated, a kingdom that would outlast all other kingdoms. And they struggled to receive him for who he was because he didn't live up to or meet their expectations. They wanted a king on their terms. The problem is though, we often do the same thing, isn't it? We want Jesus to be king on our terms. We want him to do what he wants, but he's a king whether we choose to acknowledge him as king or not. He does, it doesn't matter what we believe or what we say. He still is the king, whether we acknowledge it or not. The question you have to ask yourselves today is simply this, is he your king? Is he truly your king? Because I think some of us, we have this mentality if we're honest with ourselves. Like we, we, we just want Jesus on our own terms. We like the Jesus that forgives us for our sins. We like the Jesus that, that keeps us from going to hell, that gets us out of hell, that, that get us out of hell free card. We like that Jesus, that sounds awesome. We struggle when it comes to the Jesus that came to be king, that, that we need to submit our lives to and, and allow him to be in charge of every area of our lives. The problem is there's no salvation without submission, submission to his lordship and his leadership in our lives. You, you can't have one without the other. They, they go together and if he's not king of your life and lord of your life, He's really not the savior of your life either. He's come to be both savior and Lord. The Bible says it like this, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I think it's just the grace of God that he allows us on this side of eternity to submit to his Lordship because the Bible says one day all of us will. That we can either submit to his lordship and his kingship on this side of eternity. We can surrender our lives to me. We can allow him to be the Lord and the the king of every area of our lives, which means he's in control of everything, our relationships, our money, how we live our lives, what we say and do. He's He's the king of all of those things and our lives are submitted to his leading. Or we can choose to submit to his leadership on the other side of eternity, but it will be too late for us to experience his glory and his kingdom. It says one day though, every single person will submit to that. And the first time Jesus came, he came humbly. And the first time he came, he came on a donkey. And the first time he came, he came in this way. But the Bible says that he is returning again, that our king is going to return. And when he comes again, it's not gonna look a lot like the first time he came. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what this second coming of our King Jesus will look like. Revelations 19, 11 through 16 says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse and its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies were with him and that were with him in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty in his name that is written on his robe and on his thigh is king of kings and Lord of Lords. When he came the first time, the Bible says he came humbly riding on a donkey. When he returns again, he is going to be that conquering king on a great right horse. When he came the first time, he came to bring peace in our hearts, peace between us and God. When he comes again, the Bible says he's coming to judge the wicked, to unleash the God's wrath on sin. The first time the Bible says he came as a lamb, came as the lamb of God, the spotless, pure spotless lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. When he returns, the Bible says he's coming like a lion. 
When he came the first time, he came to save. When he comes again, he's coming to judge. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all our allegiance, worthy of all of our loyalty. This is who Jesus, our King, is. Would you stand with me as we close today? Question I want to ask you as we close and as we just close in a time of worship is simply this. Not only is he the king, but is he your king? Is he your king? Is he the king of your life? Not really concerned if you've grown up in church, you've gone to church your whole life, gone through the motions, all those things. None of those things really matter. At the end of the day, the one question we have to answer is, is Jesus my king? Not only is, my, is he my savior, but is he my, my king as well? And so would you just close your eyes for a moment? I just want you to, I wanna take a moment to just do a little bit of spiritual inventory in our lives. Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? Have you put yourself under his lordship and his leadership? Have you repented of your sins and turned to him for his grace and mercy? Have you received the forgiveness that's only found through a relationship with him? If he is the king of your life, has your life been changed because of your allegiance to the king? Have your actions changed? Have your, your mission changed? Have your priorities and your desires and all of that been changed because, because Jesus is your king? Because if he's your king, listen, everything changes. I'm not saying you're gonna be perfect, but everything begins to change in our lives as we submit to the lordship and the leadership of, of the king Jesus in our lives. We live different. We serve different. We value our time different. Everything is different because he's our king. And if he's not your king today, will you make your prayer today just as those people prayed that first day and, and what they prayed was so short-sighted. They didn't even know what they were truly asking. Hosanna, save me now. You're the only one who can save me, Jesus. Not from the the consequences of my sins, not from the, the little things I go through, because that's often what we ask. God, I want you to save me, but just save me from the consequences of my choices. Get me out of what I got myself into. No, to save now, God, save me from my sins. Save me from, from the separation that's between me and God. Save me and do what only you can do. Bridge the gap that I cannot bridge. Is he your Lord and Savior? Is he your King today? As we close in, in, in worship and prayer today, I want to just encourage you that if you're here today and Jesus is not your king, let Palm Sunday be a reminder that, that he is a king and he's not just any king. He's not a king of a kingdom that has been here and gone. He's a king eternally. His kingdom will never end. And you have an opportunity on this side of eternity to to submit to his leading as the king of your life or you will submit to his leading for eternity but at one point every single one of us will declare that he is king and my hope and my prayer is that you declare your allegiance to him on this side of eternity that you experience his blessings his forgiveness and do and for him to do in your life what only he can do for you if you don't know him yet today as we close in worship and prayer i would encourage you in your own words to surrender your life to jesus to trust him with your your sins, to repent, the Bible says, of your sins, which means to turn from the way you're going and to turn back to God, to submit yourself under his leading and his authority in your life, to trust him. There's no magic prayer you have to pray. There's no, if you repeat after me, this is, there's nothing like that. It's just your heart and your own words, trusting him. You can leave this place today, the Bible says, as a new creation, knowing that your sins are forgiven, that there's a new allegiance that you live for. And I would encourage you, 
to make that decision today. And for those of us who are here who would say, yes, he is the king of my life. As we close in worship, I wanna encourage you to worship him for the king that he is. There's times that we come in, let's be honest ourselves, there's times we come in and maybe we're tired, we haven't had enough coffee and we got kids and we're just kind of going through the motions. We show up and we sing the songs, but we don't really worship the king. We just kind of go through the motions. I wanna encourage you that every time we worship, we have an opportunity to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to give him all of our praise, not just empty words, but all of our praise. All of our, it's an overflow of what he has done in our lives, an overflow of our praise. And so we wanna worship him for the King. He is not giving him a half-hearted praise, but giving him our best praise today as we close. And listen, I wanna also challenge you that if you're a follower of Christ, and you're a citizen of his kingdom. He is your king. That means you leave this place every single Sunday. You leave as an ambassador of the king, which means that everywhere you go, everything you do, everything you say, you say as a representation of King Jesus. We go out of here with the call and the charge to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ into a world that is desperate. The Bible says that he has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He has a heart for the broken, which means we need to have a heart for the broken. When we leave here, we leave as ambassadors. We leave declaring the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Let us never forget our call. Let us never forget our allegiance. Let us never forget that he's not just our savior. He is also our king. So Father, today, I thank you for, for those in this room who are maybe right now for the very first time surrendering their lives to you as their king. God, I pray that you would do a work in their life that only you can do. God, I thank you that you can forgive their sins Lord, their sins, past, present, and even their future sins, God, that you can heal them or you can restore them. You can redeem what has been broken. You can bring them and adopt them into your family and make them a new creation in you, God. That is what you do. That is what you've come to do. You've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And so, God, we admit that we need you. We admit, just as those people admitted singing Hosanna, we need you to save us now, God, to do in us what only you can do. God, we thank you for that, Lord, today. For those of us who do follow you, God, let us never lose sight that we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that there's no authority that has not been granted by you, that there's no authority that has not been established by you, that there's nothing that you, are, that you are beneath, there's nothing that is greater than you, that every kingdom will come and go, but your kingdom remains forever, God. So let us worship you as the King that you are, worthy of all of our praise and all of the glory and all of the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Prayer partners, if you're here, if you want to come up to the corners, if you need prayer today, let us pray with you. And one of the ways that we can worship our King is just to bow down before his altar. So would you be humble enough to come and bow before him? We love you, Lord. In the darkness we were waiting with our hope and with our light. Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophet To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt Praise the Father Praise forever. 
Father, be with us as we go. May we glorify you in all we do this week. Amen. Have a blessed week, church. We'll see you on Friday and Sunday. Let's celebrate.